0: The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. Today, the FOMC raised its policy interest rate by three quarters of a percentage point, and we anticipate that ongoing increases will be appropriate. In addition, we are continuing the process of significantly reducing the size of our balance sheet.
1: As the Federal Reserve raised its benchmark interest rate by three quarters of a percentage point, the housing market is feeling the effects. According to Freddie Mac, the 30-year fixed mortgage rate is now at 6.29%. That is the highest in 14 years and up more than a quarter from just last
2: week. The heads of America's biggest banks will face questions from the House Financial Services Committee.
1: I would like to ask all of you and go down the list. No new fossil fuel production starting today. So that's zero. Does your bank have a policy against funding new oil and gas products? Mr. Diamond?
3: Absolutely not. And that would be the road to hell for America.
1: Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Sir, you know what? Everybody that got relief from student loans has a bank account with your bank should probably take out their account and close their account.
3: The world needs 100 million barrels effectively in oil and gas every day and we need it for 10 years. To do that, we need proper investing in the oil and gas complex. Investing in the oil and gas complex is good for reducing CO2. What we have all seen is that because of the high price of oil and gas, particularly for the rest of the world, you've seen everyone going back to coal not just poor nations like India and China, Indonesia and Vietnam, but wealthy nations like Germany, France and the Netherlands. CO2 is getting worse. We need to have proper rules and regulations and government policy to have an effective transition to reduce CO2, keeping energy secure.
1: How do you see the ongoing energy crisis having the impact on green investment and the transition to green energy sources? Let me make one thing clear. Today's energy crisis is not because of Russia. Sure, it's been exaggerated because of Russia and weaponization of gas, but we are here because of Western policy, which has simply focused on energy transition, not on energy security.
4: My bills are rising. It seems like every month they get higher and higher.
3: With natural gas prices making it more expensive
4: to produce electricity, Consumer electric prices have jumped 15.8% this year. And when the leaves flip from fall to winter, it's only going to get worse. A national energy assistance group estimates that natural gas heating costs will rise 34.3% this season, the second year in a row of huge increases.
1: No new fossil fuel production starting today, zero. I want to take the most aggressive action ever, ever, ever to confront
5: the climate crisis Ever in the whole world. And that's not hyperbole, that's
0: a fact. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team.
6: The Fed raised interest rates by three quarters of a point this week for the third consecutive time this year. We have gone from a zero Fed funds rate at the beginning of the year to what is expected to be a 4.5% Fed funds rate by the end of the year. The Fed isn't even stopping to wait to see what these rate hikes will do to the economy. The rate hikes are strengthening the dollar as the Fed policy wreaks havoc across the globe as commodities such as oil are priced in dollars. The odds are running high that they are taking us into another financial crisis as debt levels are now 130% of GDP. The rate hikes are also raising the government deficits by forcing the Treasury to pay more in interest on the debt it issues with multi-trillion deficits staring us in the years ahead. Hi everyone, I'm Jim Plavin. Welcome to the Financial Sense NewsHour. Up on deck is Jim Welsh from Macro Tides. Jim sees an opportunity to start nibbling on long-term Treasuries after the worst bond market in 40 years going long bonds ahead of a Fed-induced crash landing in the economy. Following Jim Welsh, Jim Bianco will join me from Bianco Research. He joins me on the show as we discuss the broader macro trends that are leading us into another hard landing with rising unemployment and a hard recession. Finally, Chris Sheridan and myself will discuss why I feel the Fed will fail at taming inflation with rising inflation rates to dominate the balance of this decade. We have a lot to digest on today's program, but first, let's find out the top stories
2: moving the markets this week with Ryan Poplava. Ryan? Well, it was a tough week for risk assets. If investors didn't think the Fed would stay tough on inflation after Jackson Hole, and from the comments of several other Fed governors, they heard it loud and clear this week from Fed Chair Jay Powell which I'll get to in just a minute. But first, let's summarize where things closed on Friday. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 4%, the S&P 500 fell 4.6%, and the NASDAQ fell 5.1%. Year-to-date now, these indices are down 186 225 and 30.5% respectively. The S&P 500 closed at 3693 which is still holding above the June closing and intraday lows, uh, Goldman Sachs Friday cut its year-end price target for the S&P 500 down to 3600 from 4300 and said there is the potential to hit 3150 if the U.S. hits a hard recession landing. All 11 sectors were down within the S&P 500. Most of the damage was seen in the economically sensitive areas. Uh, down the most was energy, 9.2%, followed by consumer discretionary, down 7.1%. Real estate down six point three, communication services down five point six, which was tied with materials and financials. The defensive sectors outperformed with consumer staples only down two point one percent and the utilities down three. Let's talk about the Fed. Uh, The Federal Reserve Open Market Committee met and announced its policy decision Wednesday to raise the Fed funds rate up 75 basis points to the range of three and three and a quarter. And that was expected. And uh, they said there is yet more to come. The projections for rates by the Fed members showed a median Fed funds rate of 4.4% at the end of this year, up a full percentage point from the June reports. Powell said likely to see another 100 to 125 basis point increase over the next two meetings. The median rate for the end of 2023 next year was 4.6%, implying no real cut anticipated maybe only a quarter point hike next year again maybe the fed pauses it's clear this week that investors finally stopped anticipating a fed pivot and became more adjusted to the thought we may see a hard landing in the economy most of the central banks followed suit this week and raised interest rates the bank of england up 50 basis points to 2 and a quarter the swiss national bank raised rates 75 basis points to end its negative rate to uh, end at about half a percent. And bucking the trend of all the central banks was the Bank of Japan, which left its rates negative 0.1%. And they said they'll stay there for the time being. The Ministry of Finance had to intervene in the US dollar and yen exchange for the first time since 1998. Another catalyst that incurs the inflation monster this week was an announcement by the UK Prime Minister announcing the largest tax cut package since 1972. The 10-year UK yield rose 36 basis points as borrowers saw that the tax cuts will result in more debt, which doesn't help in a time of inflation. I really want to say something about governments spending money to reduce inflation, but I'll bite my tongue. The British pound fell 3.4% against the dollar, which had a strong finish to the week, up 2.9% to fresh highs. In the economic reports this week, housing starts rose in August, while permits fell, suggesting the near-term strength in starts might be short-lived. The NAHB Housing Market Index for September showed another decline at 46 versus 49 in August. A number below 50 is a decline in confidence. Unemployment claims barely rose, only up uh, 5,000 to 213,000, which supports the Fed, again, being aggressive. August Leading Economic Index decreased 0.3%. Friday, the IHS Market Manufacturing PMI, that's the Purchasing Managers Index, came in at 51.8, a slight uptick, while the services PMI was unchanged at 437 We should get a lot of key economic reports next week, including income and inflation data Friday, in addition to consumer sentiment with housing and manufacturing data throughout the week. That wraps up this week with yet another hawkish Fed, which is beginning to project Volcker. Last June, Powell said the board was not trying to induce a recession. Now, let's be clear about that, he said. This week, Powell said No one knows whether this process will lead to a recession or if so, how significant that recession would be. So a slight change in what he's trying to be clear about. But like Gunlock says, this week the Fed oversteers and to Gunlock's credit, who's to say the inflation rate magically stops down at 2%? What is clear is this will be the question investors grapple with for the rest of 2022 and a hard landing versus a soft landing. Up next, Jim Welsh, our guest technician for the week.
1: Farmers at the retail level who buy and use anhydrous ammonia in the fall are looking at a price of about $1,300 per short ton. For comparison purposes, about two years ago, that price was closer to $300. So I would call the scenario that we're in right now for fertilizer really a a slow-moving disaster. Some of the impacts of these higher fertilizer prices are going to extend easily into 2022 three, if not into 2024.
7: To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com
0: and hit the subscribe button. If you're seeking financial advice and how to invest in today's markets, Financial Sense Wealth Management can help from setting up or providing advice on 401k plans, managing corporate cash balances in a zero interest rate environment, to helping individuals, foundations, and businesses achieve their financial goals. Give Financial Sense Wealth Management a call today at 888-486-3939. Let us work together to help you get on the path to success. Financial Sense Wealth Management has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Call now at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management.
6: Joining me on the program is Jim Welsh. He edits Macro Tides. And Jim, I want to start out with the Fed this week. Up until the Jackson Hole speech in August, the market was thinking, well, they did three quarters of a point. Maybe they're going to maybe slow down, pause or pivot here. But the Jackson Hole speech kind of threw that out the window. So here we are. They just raised it three quarters of a point. They're hinting another three quarters of a point in November and possibly half a point in December, taking us up to almost four and a half. Jim, when we started out the year
4: at zero, uh, what does all
6: this mean? What's your take and where do we go from here?
4: I think what we've seen is a progression, Jim, in terms of last November, Powell said inflation wasn't going to be transitory and that monetary policy was going to shift to address it. Back in December of last year, Jim, the Fed funds futures on December 9th were forecasting three quarter point increases for all of 2022. So I think what we've seen here is a disconnect between statements by the FOMC and Powell and Wall Street's uh, acceptance of that. So in April, he said, yeah, we're going to move the funds rate up to uh, a neutral rate. Wall Street didn't believe him. And when they started to follow through, the S&P dropped from 4,600 to under 3,700. As you noted, going into Jackson Hole, Wall Street had this idea that the Fed would raise the funds rate up uh, to around 4% and then bring it down. Uh, in the second quarter of next year. And Powell pushed back against that in his Jackson Hole speech. And I think the dot plots uh, coming out of the meeting yesterday, Jim, have driven home the point that, again, Fed members have been talking about for weeks. They're going to raise the funds rate to a restrictive level and then hold it there for an extended period of time because they hope to avoid the mistakes of the 1970s. And I think Wall Street still was clinging to, oh, they're going to raise it and then bring it down. And yesterday was a you know a big wake up call.
6: You know what strikes me about this, and I'm just taking a look what's happening to real estate. As the day you and I are talking, thirty year mortgages at six and a half on their way to seven percent. I've talked to real estate agents, and they go, the buying market is like crickets out there. Uh, I had a client, Jim, that was looking at homes and. Uh, Phoenix area at the beginning of the year, there were 3,700 homes in the entire area of Phoenix. Now there's
4: over 20,000 for sale. Wow. Uh, Well, again, back in March, uh, I wrote about the huge decline in affordability. Uh, Back then it was down around 30% when you combine the price increase that we had seen over the prior two years in the uptick in mortgage rates, which obviously has only accelerated since that point in time. So none of this should really be a surprise that real estate is uh, weakening as it is. And I again, this is the Fed's response. After real estate prices rose almost 40% in two years, uh, the Fed, I think, realizes that they're pricing out a lot of people from the housing market. And the only way they can, if you will, correct that is to bring housing prices down. And I think we are going to see a modest decline in housing prices over the next 12 to 18 months. I do not expect anything like a replay of 2008. So as we look at this, Jim, the thing that concerns me is we're we're
6: drawing down our SPR to keep oil prices down ahead of the election. After the election, they stop doing that. And there's two things I'm looking at. What happens to oil? Because demand is not as down as much as they think you've got OPEC that is 3.6 million barrels short of their target. Come February of next year, you have the caps on Russian oil that can remove about 1.9 million barrels from the market. So you and I know, Jim, the Fed cannot create barrels of oil. They cannot create nitrogen fertilizer for the farmers. What happens if energy prices go up? And the second one is you've got almost fiscal policy is doing the opposite of what monetary policy. Fed's trying to slow things down and Congress keeps passing these new spending bills, pushing money into the economy. The two are at odds with each other.
4: You're 100% right. The reality is it just makes it more difficult for the Federal Reserve, given the spending. I guess the silver lining is that the money that was sent out in 2020 and 21 is helping the economy weather the high inflation we're experiencing because consumers coming into this year had more than $2 trillion worth of savings. Now that's skewed obviously to the upper incomes, but it has helped the economy weather it. But your bigger point, I think, is that from an energy standpoint, energy prices are going to remain higher for longer. And I wrote about this in my September macro tides, Jim. And if you look at the 1970s, OPEC, Raised uh, oil prices from three bucks and seventy three to twelve dollars and seventy four, up to thirty nine dollars and seventy nine. And U.S. oil companies increased their exploration by five hundred percent. And the net result is we had a, a big increase in oil production in the U.S., which brought oil prices down from thirty nine to ten dollars. Then in two thousand ten to fourteen, oil prices were eighty five to one fifteen. Fracking unleashed an enormous amount of natural gas, but also oil. Oil prices subsequently dropped in 2016 to below 60 bucks where they remained. The current policy of this administration and and really from the Democratic Party has been to eliminate fossil fuel production uh, in coming years. And I understand bringing emissions down, trying to, you know, uh, address CO2. I, I get it. At the same time, I think it's being short-sighted. And the net result is because we're not seeing investment over the last decade uh, in oil development new wells has dropped significantly. So to your point, what's going to happen is oil prices may come down if we have any kind of a global slowdown, but they're not going to come down as much. And potentially, we will see over the next three to six months, oil prices ratchet up back above hundred dollars a barrel. That's a problem.
6: There's an, another problem that I see is the strength of the dollar because oil is denominated in dollars. So if you take a look at the Europeans, the Japanese yen is almost to 150 to the dollar. They have to pay for this oil that they need, which is remained elevated, but it's even more so for them because they have to pay for it in dollars with their currency that's depreciating. So It's not just that the
4: Fed is creating a problem here, but they're also creating a problem overseas. John Connolly, I think it was, who was Treasury Secretary in the 1970s, it's our currency, your problem. And so what's happening for a lot of emerging market economies who don't have oil domestically and also are relying on the imports of food, the increases we've seen in energy and food prices are compounded, as you noted, by the decline in their currency. So If their currency is down 10%, they're effectively paying 10% above whatever the market price is, because they have to exchange their currency into the dollar. So effectively, the strong dollar is exporting inflation in Japan, in Europe, in emerging market economies. And as a result, their central banks are raising rates too. So there's a spillover effect, which is going to have an impact on the global economy. So my take is, Has been. No recession this year, but next year, I think the odds are really high that we are going to see a recession. And some of this is going to be the, if you will, the circular weakness from the global economy back into the U.S.
6: You know, the other thing that strikes me about this, Jim, is the Fed takes its excess earnings on its bond portfolio, (laughs) gives it to Congress now you take a look at what the Fed's going to do, that may disappear. And then also much of our debt is short term. I mean, the government was saving money when you only paid 10 basis points on T-bills. But now instead of 10 basis points, it's 3 and 4%. So as these bonds roll over, which are all short term, and they go into short term debt, it's going to raise the deficit, which is going to get larger because the government's going to be paying more interest.
4: 100% right, Jim. And, and there's two things. As you noted, for many years, the Federal Reserve collects interest from its, its portfolio and then remits uh, after deducting expenses back to the Treasury, which visually made it look like the deficit was a little bit better. I think last year was about $107 billion, So we are talking about a lot of money. And as they increase the Fed funds rate, the deposit rate that they pay banks for having money on deposit with the Fed, that's an expense. So the amount of money that the Fed is going to send to the Treasury is going to drop. But the bigger point, as you noted, uh, is interest expense is going to consume an ever larger percentage of the budget. I think the average maturity, Jim, across the whole Treasury spectrum is somewhere between five and seven years. And as we've seen, the Treasury curve has basically flatlined around three and a half percent. So you're 100% right. What's going to happen is that the interest expense is going to climb and it's going to be problematic, especially as we go out five to seven years from now, as that stuff starts compounding. Um, These are some of the reasons why energy, the deficit and so forth, why we either have started another secular bear market uh, or will be in one within the next two to three years, similar to what we saw between 1966 to 1982. But there's aspects of it we won't talk about it right here, but that I think potentially suggests that it could be more severe than the 1966 to 82 secular bear market. But all these things are coming together at a time uh, when the vulnerability is greater due to the amount of debt that the U.S. has already accumulated.
6: That's amazing, Jim, that you mentioned 1966 to 1982. I wrote an article back and I said, what we're likely to see going forward is what we experienced between 1966 and 1982. The Fed would raise, then they would lower a little bit, then they would raise, they'd lower a little bit. And we slowly climbed this mountain of interest rates until we finally got to the point with inflation that Volcker came in. But my contention is, Jim, uh, You know, Volcker did that when debt to GDP was only 30% of GDP. Today, it's like 130%. Yep,
4: yep. No, the vulnerability is far greater today than it has been any other time. And it also calls into question whether or not another surge of government spending uh, sometime in the next handful of years might start to undermine the dollar. Uh, which I think is is likely. Um, but the thing, you know, you brought up the 70s, and the Federal Reserve has mentioned this on, you know, Powell and other members. They want to avoid the 1970s. And one of the things that we're going to post a chart deck to the website that people can listen to and then look at these charts. But as you noted, what they did is in response to a rising inflation in the late 60s and throughout the 70s, is the Fed jammed on the brakes hike the fed funds rate aggressively only to cause a recession which then caused them to reverse and lower rates and each time they did that inflation was at a higher and higher low if you will i think the fed believes and maybe hopes that if they get to a modestly restrictive level i think it's somewhere around four percent maybe four and a quarter and then holds it there they can avoid tipping the economy into a recession and instead slow growth to zero to one percent for the next couple of years. And that will unwind labor market tightness and bring inflation down. That's their game plan, is to avoid what they did in, the Fed did in the 70s. Whether or not it'll work remains to be seen. But I think that is the difference between this Fed and the 1970s. They're trying to learn from the policy mistakes uh, from the 1970s.
6: Let's switch our attention to the stock market here. We've got two headwinds for stocks, in my opinion. One, a slowing economy, its impact on earnings. That's number one. And number two, since the majority of the companies in the S&P are international companies, a strengthening dollar, like we're seeing now, hurts earnings overseas when they're translated back into
4: dollars. Yep, absolutely correct. Uh, I think uh, about 40% of S&P revenue is based overseas. So they're getting a double whammy, both the dollar impact, which makes it more difficult for U.S. companies to sell overseas because it means our products are more expensive. But the other thing is, as we noted earlier, global weakness, especially in Europe and Japan, is so that it's going to be even a a tougher environment for companies to sell uh, into. So I, You know, my take has been is if you look at the secular decline in interest rates since the peak in 1981, the federal funds rate made a lower high at the end of each cycle progressively. The last high was two and a half percent in 2018. So from a secular standpoint, 40 year downtrend with the Fed's action yesterday, Jim, we're above that. I think that's significant. It kind of augers into, we're in a different environment. In case anybody didn't know it, that's what, the, to me, the chart suggests. So what I've written over recent months is, uh, if the Fed has forced to go above 2.5%, the probabilities of a recession will increase significantly. So I think the odds of a recession next year have gone really high. And that gets to your other point. Corporate earnings are still expected to be up next year. I don't see that happening. So, the market has the problem of dealing with earnings estimates that are likely to come down. Historically, when that's happened, the, the PE ratio also takes a haircut. So, you get a double whammy on that. That's why I think the SP can fall to 3,500 and potentially 3,200. And there's a chart in the deck that will be posted. Uh, showing retracement levels. So the S&P rallied effectively from 2,200 to 4,800. Um, The 3,82 retracement was 3,815 of that big move up. The 50% retracement is around 3,500. The 6,18 is around 3,200. So my expectation in April, Jim, and I wrote it uh, in one of my weekly technical reviews, was that the S&P was likely to drop to 3,850 And it was based on this idea, the Fed's going to tighten, the economy's going to slow, and uh, the S&P was likely to retrace at least that 38%. So this is how an intersection of using technical analysis and fundamental analysis can really help, if you will, identifying potential weakness and how weak the market will be. And I think we're seeing the likelihood that the S&P, over the next handful of months, will drop towards that 3,500 level.
6: Final question, Jim, uh, given the shape of the yield curve, the 30 years inverted, you know, we got the 30 year today at 3.6. six, we've got short term rates over 4%. If we head into a recession. Typically, this is probably one of the worst bond markets I've seen in almost 30, 40 years in terms of what's happened to bonds. But what about the prospect for longer term bonds as the market wakes up and investors wake up that we're going into a hard recession?
4: Well, I, this last week, really the last two weeks, I've been talking about a coming peak in Treasury yields and using again a chart of TLT. It looks like it's completing the decline from the March 2020 high. And I recommended taking a one third position in TLT because, to your point, I think sooner or later, uh, as people realize, oh, now they're not just going to slow the economy we're going to see a recession. We're going to see unemployment probably approach 5% next year. All of that combined, I think, suggests that we're going to see treasury yields come down, probably erratically at first. But TLT, which is trading around 105, 106, I think potentially could rally to about 120. That was the high in early August Uh, So that is the technical target on what I think can happen over the next three to six months with treasury yields coming down.
6: All right. Well, listen, Jim, as we close, uh, you write some of the greatest stuff. What I like is you combine technical analysis with fundamentals. So you're not just looking at charts, you're kind of giving the fundamental reasons why the charts are looking the way they do. How could our listeners find out more about macro
8: tides?
4: Well, they can go to macrotides.com and see additional information. And I'm always happy, Jim, uh, to listeners of your show to provide uh, a recent publication. So the September Macrotides looked at a lot of things you and I have talked about in greater detail, obviously. And I also do a weekly technical review every Monday. So I'm happy to provide recent issues so that people can really get a firsthand taste of what uh, the type of analysis that I do. And I appreciate the opportunity to do that.
6: All right, Jim. Well, listen, it's good to have you on the program. I look forward to speaking with you again in the future.
4: Sounds good, Jim.
8: Thanks so much. We now have a Fed that has finally beaten the market over the head to convince them that, yes, we mean what we say. We are going to tighten until something breaks. So I still expect uh, more weakness. Uh, There's certainly more risk on the downside. In a short-term basis, I would say this September, I'd say into maybe October 12th before the inflation report comes out would be a primary to look for some sort of a bottoming period here. And I think uh, we could have a bit of a a pop back into November, still some risk. So I'm not going to get too euphoric about uh, up, up and away because we have a Fed that needs to see the inflation cycle not only peaking, but rolling over more sharply in a, in a trend fashion. But uh, nonetheless, it means that we have to wait for the next report before we start seeing the beginning of a new downtrend on the inflation statistics. So I think that is coming and it would be good for at least a short-term bounce. To listen
7: to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to FinancialSense.com and hit the subscribe button.
1: At Financial Sense Wealth Management, we are committed to helping you build, maintain, and preserve your wealth. Contact us today to find out about our comprehensive financial planning and asset management services. Whether you're planning for retirement, taxes, putting together an estate plan, or need assistance in managing a 401k, Financial Sense Wealth Management is here to help. Give us a call to speak with one of our certified financial planners or wealth advisors at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsense.com and hit where it says Contact Us. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management.
6: Joining me on the program is Jim Bianco. And Jim, uh, as I mentioned, we're we're doing this on a Tuesday. The, the Fed will meet tomorrow and they'll make their announcement. Let's take it from there. What do you expect the Fed to do? Number one, the market is pricing in 75 basis points. But more importantly, what do you think they'll say after they raise those rates? Yes, you're
5: correct. The market is pricing in a 100 percent chance of a 75 basis point move. And that's not unusual for the market to price a fully, in other words, fully price in the move. The Fed has never in 28 years failed to deliver on something that the market priced in 100%. So the expectation is 75 basis points. Anything other than that would be a big surprise. And while that is expected, I think the, the wording is going to come down to the following question. If you look to the November meeting, the market has given a 77% chance the Fed will hike 75 basis points again for the fourth straight time at the November 2nd meeting. If that were to happen, that would take the funds rate to 375 to 4%. The meeting today, will that, or the meeting when they have it, will that alter the perception about what's gonna happen in November? I don't think it will. I think that this is part and parcel of what Chairman Powell wants. He wants a hawkish Fed. He wants markets a little on edge. He wants to slow the economy to bring down inflation. So if the market is expecting another 75 basis points in November, I think that that's really what he'll try to steer it towards, or at least give it no indication that it's going to
6: change from that view. So let's say they they do go 75 basis points in November. And then what about December? Do they take us to their target rate of what is it, four, four and a half? Yeah, that
5: would set up them for the the mid-December meeting. Then another hike of 50 basis points would get you to four and a quarter to four and a half. And that would be where the market ultimately thinks the Fed is going to go. So They could achieve their goal by the end of the year. And the argument there is, if that's what the Fed wants to be at four and a quarter to four and a half, then get there. Don't take your time getting there. It doesn't help anything by dragging this process out. So that's why I think that the market has got such an aggressive viewpoint. And I think Chairman Powell has gone a long way to fostering that aggressive viewpoint, especially the Jackson Hole speech which was only eight minutes long, and it was uh, very directed to the point. And yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, Nick Timoros wrote a story that Chairman Powell had a completely different speech in mind. He shelved that speech for this eight-minute direct speech, according to the Wall Street Journal, precisely because the stock market had rallied 17% and was talk of the Fed pivoting. He didn't want any of that. And that's why he he gave that hawkish speech. And it accomplished what he wanted. Neil Kashkari, the Minneapolis Fed, said right afterwards, he was happy, happy to see the stock market go down.
6: Don't fight the Fed has never been more appropriate phrase than it has been this year. Now Let's talk about two problems he's going to have to deal with that I think he doesn't have any control. And right now, Jim, we have fiscal policy which is in conflict with the Fed policy. The Fed's trying to tighten, slow the economy down, slow down demand, basically uh, go after the labor market, which has been rising. On the other hand, you've got what? What have we got? Like four trillion dollars of new spending programs that have come in with the Biden administration, and so you have fiscal policy in conflict with monetary policy. That's number one, and number two. We are releasing, I just saw that we're releasing another 10 million barrels from the strategic petroleum reserves. So what happens after November when we stop draining the SPR? What happens when the price caps on Russian oil go into effect in February of next year? I just read a story in oil price where OPEC is down by 3.6 million barrels from hitting their targets. You and I know, Jim, the Fed can't control barrels of oil or nitrogen fertilizer. Yeah, you're right. There's
5: something like $4 trillion of excess spending that have come on. And that doesn't even include student debt relief, which could add another $500 billion or thereabouts, depending on how one measures it. But it will be significant. And all of that would work as a stimulant on the economy and help to push inflation higher. At the same time, the Fed is trying to slow the economy down so you're right, fiscal policies at cross purposes with monetary policy. And added to that, the past weekend, President Biden was in a 60 Minutes interview, and he said, I'm, I'm not worried about inflation, and that he basically promised that he was going to stimulate the economy to, to keep it going. So I suspected there's going to be more of an issue there, and that the chairman committed to, the Federal Reserve chairman committed to the idea of slowing inflation, it's all the more reason why I think he's going to push for the idea of 75 in November and then maybe another 50 after that and try and get to four and a quarter to four and a half as quickly as possible because he does not want to see inflation slow. As far as energy goes, you're right. The two big drivers that have lowered energy prices have been the excess supply from the strategic reserve release. It has been running at around eight or nine million barrels a week or about a million and a quarter ish or so. A day. Remember, we consume about 19 million barrels a day already. So you're adding a good five to 7% of the supply by that, these strategic reserve releases. And that's significant. That's very significant. The other thing that has been lowering the price of crude oil has been demand destruction, but not in the United States. There's actually very little evidence that there's demand destruction in the U.S. Where there's huge demand destruction is in China the zero COVID lockdowns, the, uh, the slowing of their economy. Let's remember in China, when you have a city of 19 million or Guangdong, a city of 21 million, and they have a shutdown, they have a lockdown, you're not allowed to leave your home. You cannot walk out the front door, you will be arrested. Well, how do you eat? The government will put a bag of food on your front step once a day, and they don't necessarily do a good job of that. And if they don't, you're on a diet. And what does that mean about your car? That means zero driving of all cars in a city of 20 million people. That's where the real demand destruction has come, has been out of China. Crude oil is a fungible commodity where it's put on a tanker and it could be shipped anywhere. If they need less of it in China, those tankers are going to come more to the United States and to Europe. That's why the crude oil market is so much lower. Natural gas is not as fungible. It's more of a pipeline market. And that's why you can have disparate prices among different regions. But if they were to end zero COVID in China, I think that the immediate reaction would be much higher energy
6: prices. So if we take a look at this, you know, the Wall Street Journal did an article yesterday talking about people outside a grocery store. You know, one family was uh, going to four different grocery stores and they would only eat what they could buy on sale. So what about this? You know, you take a look at farmers. They've got diesel fuel. They, they have fertilizer cost. Ford just announced. They missed their earnings, their inflationary aspect, cut $1 billion off their profits. So how far, Jim, do they take this before we really start seeing the repercussions in the economy? And what about credit spreads and what happens uh, between low quality and high quality debt? Well, to take the first part, this is why... The
5: Federal Reserve has got such a laser-like focus on the inflation rate. Inflation impacts 100% of the population. Everybody is impacted by it now. Some of us are in the position where I see higher prices, but I don't have to change my lifestyle because of higher prices. But the bottom 40% do. They have to change their lifestyle because of these higher prices. That's the people that could only buy stuff that are on sale, as you mentioned, and are making dramatic cuts. That's who the Federal Reserve is saying that they've got to try and do something to slow the increase of prices, to slow the increase of CPI, because it's such a bad impact. Now, there is a risk that that could hurt the economy as well. And the Fed is prepared to tolerate some level of more unemployment and some level of a slower growth economy. Now, that hasn't, re- especially on the employment part, that really hasn't happened yet. They say that they're prepared for it, but you know, it's easy to say um, I could tolerate lower growth when you're getting 300,000 jobs uh, created a month. When you're getting 25,000 or zero jobs created a month, you might have a different attitude about it that you didn't think you would when you were creating 300,000. So we'll see whether or not that they will continue with that. But I do think that when it comes to the inflationary aspects of uh, it, they're right. And I also should add that both the New York Fed and the San Francisco Fed have done studies. A lot of people might be listening to this and saying it's all supply, supply chain problems. They have looked at it and they think that of the 8.3% inflation rate that the US has, maybe half of that, 4% or 4.5% of that is supply chain. But there's a good three and three quarters to 4% of that, which is excess demand, pump priming from fiscal stimulus, all the check mailing that we did, all the monetary stimulus that we did through March before we started raising rates. All of that has been on the idea of pushing up more demand. And the idea which we talked about a minute ago, if we get more fiscal stimulus, that is a demand push as well. That is within the Fed's grout realm that they could rein in is excess demand. And if that's half of inflation is excess demand, then they're right to be very aggressive in raising rates. To your final point, as I said, inflation impacts everybody. The Ford announcement the day we're recording came out, an extra billion dollars of costs in production because of higher input costs. The inflation rate impacts, like I said, 100% of the population. It just costs four a billion dollars. And that's why they missed. And that's why their stock price is getting hurt off of it. And that just underscores what I said before. Every single person is hurt by inflation. In a recession, certain people, those that lose their jobs or see a business downturn, are hurt. That is only a small percentage of the population. Now, they're hurt badly. But there's only a small percentage. The vast majority of the population in a recession is not impacted much at all, if at all. So that's really where the problem, where the the balancing act comes in. Some people are hurt badly because of a recession. The vast majority are not. Everybody's hurt a little bit because of inflation. The lower end of the economic scale is hurt a lot more. The point is, I think the Fed is right to say, given high inflation or the risk of recession, we'll risk recession to rein in inflation. It's been so long since we've seen sustained inflation at this level that we forgot how bad it was in the 1970s, and that we all think that the only thing the Fed should be concerned about is growth in jobs. And still, a lot of people think it should only be growth in jobs, that we forgot that inflation is a major problem
6: and should not be dismissed as easily as many are. Well, let's talk about some events that maybe can't be foreseen. But let's say, for example, China goes away from lockdowns and they open up their economy. So Chinese consumers start driving again. They start, uh, you know, things start to get back to normal. That's one scenario. Let's also talk about the scenario in the Ukraine that uh, right now the Russians are losing ground and that maybe Putin works out some kind of peace deal, what that would do to energy prices and, let's say, some of these sanctions that we put into place. What about those two scenarios? Well, in the first scenario, there's a plausible argument to be made that uh, the Chinese
5: Communist Party is meeting in their National Party Congress, which starts in a couple of weeks, which will be over with by the middle of October. President Xi will be appointed for a third term, or as they've been saying, you know, appointed for life effectively at that point. And that after the National Party Congress, then they'll back off of the zero COVID policy. That's what everybody in the West keeps trying to convince themselves. Now, I use the word convince themselves because I've joked with some of my uh, friends that are China experts that I haven't heard people that convinced since they said that wait till the Olympics are over within February Then they'll get rid of the zero COVID policy. They only need it for show because the global stage is going to be looking at them during the Olympics. Well, the Olympics came and went and and zero COVID stayed and stayed. So, yeah, I get it. It makes sense that the National Party Congress could be the, 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 the catalyst, but we'll see. But let's assume that it is. Then you're right. They open up the economy. The Chinese population breathes a sigh of relief. The government will encourage them to try and get to back to normal as quickly as possible. And that means go about leading an economic life again. You drive your car, you go to work, you do things that you were not doing because of these lockdowns and restrictions or these fears of restrictions. Just keep in mind, maybe you've seen them on social media and I have the stories where You know, they do test people in China randomly, like literally in the streets. And the last video that I saw was in an Ikea in Shanghai and one person tested positive. They literally pull a person out of the the store and bring them into a corner and they give them a, a COVID test and it turns out to be positive. And then the rumor goes around that somebody's positive. Well, what happens is in China is the doors are locked. Everybody that's in the store cannot leave the store for several days they drop off a bag of food in front of the store until everybody's click. Look, in the West, we wouldn't tolerate that for two seconds. It would be revolution in our country if you tried to do that or in Europe. But that's the way they do it in China. So whenever there's a rumor that somebody tested positive in some gathering like a store or sports stadium, there's a mass stampede to get out the door before the authorities lock the front door. So if you get rid of all of these fears, that's why I brought that up. If you get rid of these fears. Now I can drive to the store again. I can go to a soccer match. I don't have to worry that one person's going to test positive and I'm going to be stuck in the stadium for a week. You're going to see tremendous increases of gasoline consumption and crude oil consumption rebound quickly in China and that would push up the price. The Ukraine. Ukraine has pushed back hard on Russia. Let me posit that the least likely scenario i believe is the one that you just said is that the russians you know kind of put their tail between their legs put put puts his tail between his legs fosters a peace deal we pat him on the head and say good boy and we lift the sanctions he would rather scorch earth the rest of the uh, country than admit that he has failed at it and so i think that ultimately if the Ukrainians are not ready to hold the territories that they took, that this war could get uglier than it can get easier. But leaving that aside, let's just go with this idea that there is some kind of a peace deal and that there is some kind of a backing off of what we see. Well, that would be enormously positive for Europe because presumably that would mean if there is a backing off that we would get the gas flows going back from Russia to Europe. And that would help to lower the price of natural gas. We would get the grain flows start to move again out of the breadbasket of Europe, which is the Ukraine. That would help to ease any pricing problems that we have with grain. Remember, the price of grain is up. It is not up enough that us in the United States or in Europe are worried about the price of food. But if you're in a poor slum in Cairo, or if you're in somewhere in the Middle East, living on subsistence, those price rises are intolerable for you. so if anything that comes along that would lower those prices of grains that would be a huge boost for those areas of the country so yes, if there was some kind of a peace deal that would that would definitely be the case but you know count me skeptical that Putin would ever admit defeat in this special operation remember it's not a war he calls it a special operation he will just make it an even more special operation to try and, you know, take back what he has lost.
6: So, as we take a look at this, we expect the Fed to be aggressive 75 basis points tomorrow, 75 in November, maybe 50 in December. Jim, what could go wrong? The Fed is notorious for always overdoing things and they crash the economy, they crash the markets in my career. I only saw one soft landing that I can think of, which was back in 94. So what are the chances that things could go wrong? And if they do, where would you see those problems arise? Oh, I think the chances are very high that they're going to go wrong. The Fed, the the old adage
5: is the Fed will hike rates until something breaks. And they're intent on breaking something. Now, at the Fed, they think it's intentional. They're going to break inflation. And that's what their goal is in hiking rates. And again, I think they're justified in thinking that way. But yes, the risk is they break the financial markets, they break the economy. And I just don't mean that we have some gradual rise of unemployment, but we have a massive rise of unemployment. We have a plunge in equity prices that creates a b- giant reverse wealth effect that slows down business. There are There is a great deal of risk in what the Fed is trying to do. And that's why they compare Jay Powell's actions now to Paul Volcker. Because you know, if we were around in 1981, and I was, and I remember that when Volcker raised rates to 21 and a half percent, you know, he's lionized today. But the vitriol and bile that was heaved on him in 1980, 81 for those acts, there was, you know, there was protests in front of the Federal Reserve that farmers um, with their tractors blockaded the building because they didn't want Federal Reserve officials to go into the building to keep raising rates. A crazy guy with a gun broke into the building, intending on killing the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee. Yeah, this stuff actually happened in 1980, 81. That's how horrible it was uh, what the Fed was doing. So when Chairman Paul is saying, well, he's going to be Volcker 2 is he really ready for that? Are we really ready for that? And there was a heavy, heavy price to be paid for those rate hikes in 81. And I think that, yes, just like now, things could definitely go sideways. And yeah, we you broke inflation, but you broke so many other things along the way to get inflation broken that it, you know people might start to worry. Like I said, I don't think the Fed has a choice. They have to be aggressive on inflation. They cannot not be aggressive on inflation, but this is a high stakes game that they're playing.
6: Yeah. And we still have, as we talked about, uh, the stimulus that's still going to work its way through. I want to move on, Jim, to interest rates. We've got the 10-year Treasury. I think interday hit 3.6 percent. We're seeing rates that we have not seen in a long time. And I'm just thinking of what this does for the government, because a lot of the government debt is short term. You know, I can remember when the T-bill rates were negative or you know, maybe you paid uh, 10 basis points on a treasury bill. Now we're talking about 3 or 4% as that debt rolls over. Let's talk about the impact and what this means for the government. Yeah, so uh,
5: you're right. We hit 3.6%, 3.59% it changed. Earlier today, that's the highest level in 11 years. The two-year note yield hit 398. That's the highest level since 2007. As far as the debt goes, there's $30 trillion of debt. About half of it matures over a two year period. So, if these rates were to stay at these levels for two years, there would be a significant increase in the debt burden or the interest rate payment burden that the federal government would endure. But if rates were to fall after that, it would immediately go away. The way I've liked to say it is these levels of rates are slightly higher. If we have these rates for one or two years, Yeah, they'll pay a little bit more in the next year or two, but then they'll get relief after that. Most of all, the long-term debt will not mature. At least half of it will not have matured. That won't be affected if rates go up for a couple of years and then come back down. It's not a problem for the government to pay it. If it goes up and stays up for several years, five, six, 10 years, then it becomes a bigger, bigger problem. Because then you're starting to roll over 10-year notes, you're starting to roll over 30-year bonds, and you're starting to lock in those high rates for a decade, if not a generation. And then you have to pay those higher rates moving forward. It becomes a real problem at that point. So no, if rates were to go up through 23, maybe into early 24, peak and start back down, I don't think it's a problem for the federal government. They stay there beyond that. And then it starts to become a problem. Will they stay there beyond that? Really comes down to what happens with inflation. If inflation were to moderate by 2024 to the two percent level, like the Fed wants, well, then they can get rates right back down to two percent. If not, and those rates and in inflation were to say level off at four percent, and rates would have to stay at you know neutral would be four and a half because the Fed I think correctly defines neutral interest rates as half a basis points or 50, 50 basis points or half a percent above the inflation rate. If we're to settle out at 4% inflation, so 4.5% would be neutral, then the debt problem burden could be a big worry, maybe three to five years out, and then you grow even more after that.
6: So let's take uh, this scenario. The Fed breaks something. They break the economy. They break the financial markets. And then they begin to pivot, or uh, the the government comes in with some kind of new fiscal stimulus spending program to resurrect the economy, don't we start this whole thing all over again? Sure. We've seen this cycle
5: twice. We saw this in 1946 and in 1949. Following 1946, we had a surge of inflation. And in fact, a lot of people don't realize that in late 46, early 47, we hit 20% on inflation, higher than we did in 1979. That was the at least by the CPI measure, that was the highest of the century. And then we had um, and then we had a recession we had massive pump priming fiscal and monetary stimulus. And in 1949, we had another surge of inflation, did not get back to 20%, but we had a secondary recession. 1974, we had something similar to that. We hit about 11 12% on inflation. We had a recession because the Fed was raising rates. We had the oil embargo too as well. And then the economy bottomed out. And then Arthur Burns in 76, 77 started priming the pump again, easing money. Um, the government started with fiscal stimulus. And by 79, 80, we had inflation all over. So these this this double peak of inflation, we've seen two cycles of it. And yes, you're right. We could definitely see a third cycle of that. If, if the inflation rate starts down, they break stuff, everybody freaks out. We get more check mailing. We get drop rates down to zero, start printing money again to get people back employed. OK, we got them back employed. But what are we going to do about that 8% inflation rate again? Uh, well, now we got to raise rates all over again to try and get that 8% inflation rate out of there. And then we wind up having a secondary recession like we did 46, 49, like we did 74 and into 80, 81. We actually had two recessions back to back in 80 and 81. So, yes, that is a
6: very real possibility, largely because we've seen it in the past. So given where we are right now, I mean, not too many things are working right now other than if you're in cash. Commodities are down, bonds, it's probably one of the worst bond markets I've seen in what 30 40 years. Stocks are down. What do you do as an investor? Just to put a finer point on that, this is the worst total
5: return in the bond market from an interest rate component that it never recorded. That you know the losses that you've you've seen in the bond market have been that way and you're right if you look at the major asset categories you know stocks bonds and divide those into international domestic and emerging so you got six categories they're all down everything is down right now you know if you want to define asset classes even more finely and then eventually you get into energy or something like that that's up some commodities are up too this is a tough year for investors because i'm a macro analyst And when people ask me, what should I do with my money, as a macro analyst, I think what they're asking me is, what big asset class is going to go up in price? Because for the last 28 years, there's always been at least one major asset class, stocks or bonds, merging domestic or international, that went up. And most of the time, it was most of them, and some of them went up by 20%. This year, none of them are going up. They're all down, and they're all down by a lot. So there, you know, to use a fancy word, unless you were idiosyncratic and you owned a couple of limited partnerships in a gas deal, and that was being primarily your portfolio, if you didn't have a portfolio like that, you've probably lost money. And it's going to be very difficult as we move forward to try and find asset classes that would do better. Now, I do think the one asset class that might provide some relief say in 23 or 24 it's going to be the fixed income sector. Why? Because now we've got yield again. One of the reasons why the total returns in the bond market are so bad this year is we started the year with no yield. And we started the so when prices fall, you don't get that cushion of a giant coupon to offset it. Well, we're making coupons right now. You know, 3 and 4% coupons, maybe even see some 5% coupons on investment grade securities in the coming months. That will offset any prior future losses so that the fixed income market might provide you a steady place to get positive returns. The stock market, if it in- unfolds like I think it's going to unfold, it's not going to be a market like it was in the 2010s. You know, just buy, a, buy the S&P, buy SPY and the federal print money and everything will go up. I think it's going to be a a decade of great change. Now, I think that means great opportunity. I think of it positively, that if you pick the right uh, sectors and if you pick the right themes, there's going to be a chance to make money. But if you think the right theme is going to be, Tina, there is no alternative. Just throw your your money into some broad-based index and wait for the broad-based index to levitate. I think that cycle might be over. I think we might be reverting back to more of a traditional stock picker Sector concept kind of market. So that's where I think investors could probably wind up making money as they reorient themselves towards how the market's going to work. But like I said, I mean, I could be wrong on this, but I just think the old days of buy SPY or buy the NQ- NQX, you know, the NASDAQ 100, and wait for the Fed to cut rates to zero and, and print money like crazy and watch the indexes
6: go up. Uh, yeah, that did work. That worked great for 15 years. I just think that cycle might be over with right now. Do You think we're more likely, Jim, and in, in closing here to see something like what we saw from 1966 to 1982? I think so.
5: And I think, we look, and we also saw that, if you would, from 2000 to 2013 as well, that we get these long consolidated periods in the index where the index level doesn't do a whole lot But within the index, there are a lot of things that you can do. From 2000 to 2013, you know, technology was a great place to be. Financials were not a great place to be during that period. If you go back to 66 to 82, what we would consider value stocks, consumer cyclicals, industrials, those were great – and your energy, those were great places to be during that period as well. There was – some periods there, you know, there was the Nifty Fifty craze in the early 70s. There was the uh, the PC boom after 1983 as well. But again, these rotations in and out of themes they could work for you very, very well in those periods. And I think we are probably entering another period like that. Like I said, they're not bad periods to be an investor. It's just the the, the previous cycle of, you know, all the boats are floating because of easy monetary policy. That's not, the, not, that's
6: not the coming cycle, but that doesn't mean that there's going to be a lack of a lack of opportunity. All right. Well, listen, Jim, as we close, you put out a lot of great macro analysis. If our listeners would like to find out more about your work, tell them an easy way they could do so. The
5: easiest way is to follow
6: me on Twitter, at Bianco Research, or me on LinkedIn under my name, Jim Bianco, or check out our website, biancoresearch.com. All right. Well, Jim, as always, it's a pleasure having you on the program. All the best. Welcome, everyone, to this week's Big
7: Picture. The title of today's episode is Conflicts of Interest, Why the Fed Will Lose the Inflation Battle. Something that we often say on this program is that the Fed will continue raising rates until something breaks. And it seems like we're getting very close to that point.
6: Well, you know, there's a couple things going on, and there's some cross currents here that are confusing to the Fed and maybe even confusing to Wall Street and investors. And that is when you keep raising interest rates, as the Fed is doing now, they'll keep doing it until they break something, the economy and the market. They're going to do both. You know, one of their goals is to raise the unemployment rate. So several million people are going to lose their jobs. And it's interesting, Chris, almost on a daily basis, you're hearing everybody from Google to Facebook to all the big tech companies are laying off. And you're not reading about it, you got to search in the news. Oh, they just laid off here. They're trying to keep this quiet right now. But one of the issues that the Fed is dealing with is we got the perfect storm in energy, lack of investment by oil companies. In fact, this week, the uh, major heads of banks were called before Congress. And you had Congress, uh, a congresswoman, asking the banks to stop lending to oil companies. This is part of uh, ESG in green.
1: You have all committed, as you all know, uh, to transition the emissions from lending net zero in 2050. So no new fossil fuel production starting today. So that's like zero. So I would like to ask all of you, does your bank have a policy against funding new oil and gas products? Mr. Diamond.
3: Absolutely not. And that would be the road to hell for America.
1: Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Sir, you know what? Everybody that got relief from student loans has a bank account with your bank, should probably take out their account and close their account. Miss Frazier, how about you? Uh, we will continue to invest in uh, and support clients who are investing in fossil fuels and in uh, in helping them transition to cleaner energies. And Mr. Monahan? Um,
4: we are helping our clients make a transition, and that means we're,
8: invested, we're lending to both oil and gas companies and to new energy companies. Yeah, Mr.
1: Sharp.
8: The same thing as Mr. Moynihan said.
1: Yeah, I, I'm not going to ask you, Mr. Diamond, because you obviously don't care about working class people in frontline communities.
6: So lack of investment, green policies, ESG, and then, of course, you have war. And I'll have more to say about that in a minute. And then the other aspect you have is a tight labor market. So the Fed has already referred to, they, they would want to see the unemployment rate get back up to about 5%, which over the next 12 months, which probably means about another couple million job losses over the next 12 months. So all of these things are converging, and fiscal policy is highly inflationary. You got to remember, not only did Trump run trillion-dollar deficits, but we spent- trillion to fight COVID by shutting down the economy and doing helicopter drops with checks in people's bank accounts. The deficit in 2020 was $4.3 trillion, and we've been running trillion-dollar deficits. So the Biden administration just added, I think it's in total, and that's not counting student loans, probably $5 trillion of stimulus. So this is the first time, Chris, that we've seen that monetary policy is not in alignment with fiscal policy or more more so on the fiscal side. Because you have these politicians that are basically don't understand the consequences of their helicopter drops and shoveling money into the economy, which gets us to the classic definition of inflation too much money chasing too few goods. And that's not even counting some of the supply issues that still linger out there. I mean, good luck. I mean, try to get a car. We've been waiting for a car, my car. I had to wait 10 months. Problems were chips. Problems were now in Germany, it's energy and chips. So Chris, this is just the beginning. So all of this stuff is converging. And it's one of the reasons I believe the fed is going to lose the battle for inflation and what we're likely to see going forward are markets that look like they did between 1966 and 82. So when you say that you believe the
7: Fed is going to lose the inflation battle, are you referring to this idea that inflation is going to remain sticky and above average levels, which is something that you know, you've know you said and we've discussed many times in the past going back to when you made this big forecast in the first part of 2020 that we should expect an inflation tsunami or tidal wave because of a lot of these forces that we're facing today. So it it is basically the idea that they're going to lose in bringing inflation down dramatically.
6: Yeah, I mean, inflation is going down right now. uh, And and the biggest reason for that has been uh, on the energy front. But I expect that to reverse after the election. But there are other things that are driving it, Chris. It's rent. It's service inflation. It's food inflation. I mean, just look at... You know, if you take somebody like John Williams at Shadow Stats that measures inflation the way we used to, we're running at 16% inflation. I don't need to tell you if you're listening to this program, just go to the store. I mean, I was shocked. I think uh what was it? It was last week. I was coming home from an event. I stopped off at Rubio's. You know, I love their fish tacos. Three fish tacos, their cheapest taco was five bucks, and a cheese crisp was 10 bucks. 25 dollars for three tacos and a cheese, Chris, that used to cost half that. And it's everywhere you look, it's in restaurants, it's in food. You know, I, you know, I usually go for my birthday, I go to Ruth Chris Steakhouse. Chris, I have no idea what I'm going to pay for a steak this year.
7: Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. And food costs are likely to stay high as well, because, you know, this is something that we just discussed this week on FS Insider with uh, a fertilizer expert from Bloomberg talking about how you know the ESG policies that we see underway, the fact that China has banned fertilizer exports, the Russia-Ukraine war, all of these are sort of a perfect storm lining up for the fact that uh, you know fertilizer prices are going to remain elevated. That's going to have a major trickle down effect to higher food prices, uh, also for feed, for cattle, for chickens, so higher meat prices. So there's not something that's going to be going away anytime soon. And as We've pointed out, and as you're saying today, I mean, the Fed has no control <laughs> over this part of the supply side. Uh, they may have control over the demand side, and Jerome Powell has very clearly said that they're going to try to bring down demand as much as they can. But they have no control over the supply side of the equation.
6: No, and I think you're, you know, maybe they get it down to four or five percent or six percent inflation from where it is. Uh, you know, we topped out at over nine. But there's no way they're going to get this down to 2%. The only way they're going to do that is put the economy into a depression. And can you imagine the political fallout for the Fed? Because, I mean, uh, Volcker had the cojones to do it in uh, 79, 80, and 81. He got all kinds of flack from the media, got it from the politicians, but he finally won the inflation war in 1982. The only reason he reversed course is Mexico and several South American countries were about ready to default on their debt to US banks, which would have thrown us into a crisis. But there's no way they're going to get it down because the Fed does not control oil, it does not control fertilizer, and it does not control fiscal spending. I mean, if you want to get rid of inflation, start drilling and stop printing. I mean, this isn't complex it's just practical. There's just no common sense and we'll get to a reason why this is not going to stop going forward.
7: You know what Jerome Powell and the Fed needs to do, you know, the, I mean, there was a period where Janet Yellen had said, we can only do so much, but fiscal policy has to play a role, right? So she had acknowledged the limitations of the Federal Reserve in managing economic growth. Jerome Powell needs to say the same thing at this point to the current administration by saying, hey, there's only so much that we can control on the demand side. And I mean, as long as supplies remain restricted, which is part of what you have under your control through regulation, particularly on anti-fossil fuel policies, the lowest number of leases that we've seen under any administration going back to World War II, not drilling Like you pointed out uh, just recently, Congresswoman talking to all the bank executives saying, you know, we are going to not drill for any more oil and gas at this point. What are you doing to make sure that you're not lending out to fossil fuel companies to expand their production? We want to completely halt any more production. Obviously, we know what that does to energy prices. The Fed needs to say, hey, these policies are what are leading to higher inflation, and will cause inflation to remain elevated, this is where you need to change. We can only do so much, but you've got to play your role on backing away from these pro-inflationary regulatory policies. That's what I think Jerome
6: Powell really needs to say in his next message. Well, he has to, and he has to have the political courage to tell people this because Congress is, you know, uh, ESG is becoming a, a religion with them, and they just don't understand this economy still runs on fossil fuels, whether it's fertilizers for farmers. And I hate to tell these Congress people, you're not going to have farmers running electric tractors. So in the middle of the day, they're going to stop for 12 hours to charge the battery on a tractor. You're not going to get a 787 in the air without jet fuel. And you're certainly not going to get these container ships crossing oceans on batteries.
7: Yeah, here are some facts recently pointed to by the science, energy, and technology expert Mark Mills at the Manhattan Institute. He has testified before Congress many times explaining how the U.S. and global energy system works, but unfortunately, many in Washington just do not either know these facts or are completely choosing to ignore them. I would highly recommend watching this full video, which we'll post in the show notes section. But here are a few comments that he makes along the lines of what you're discussing, Jim.
9: We're headed toward an exciting all-renewable energy future. Wind and solar will power the world of tomorrow. And tomorrow isn't far off. It's time to wake up. You're having a dream. Here's the reality. Oil, natural gas, and coal provide 84% of all the world's energy. That's down just two percentage points from 20 years ago. And oil still powers nearly 97% of all global transportation. Two decades and $5 trillion of governments investing in green energy, and we've barely moved the needle. This was supposed to be easy. Why is it so hard? In a word, rocks. To get the same amount of energy from solar and wind that we now get from fossil fuels, we're going to have to massively increase mining by more than 1,000%. Copper, iron ore, silicon, nickel, chromium, zinc, cobalt, lithium, graphite, and rare earth metals like neodymium. We need them all. Where would these new mines be located? Well, for one, China. That country is today the single largest source of most of our critical energy materials. The United States is not only a minor player, but is dependent on imports for 100% of 17 critical minerals. Do we want to give China more political and economic leverage? Europe has made itself dependent on Russia for 40% of its natural gas. How well has that worked out? Ironically, we have all the minerals we need right here in North America, but good luck trying to get them out of the ground. Proposals to build mines in the United States and increasingly almost everywhere else meet fierce opposition, if not outright bans. To give just one example, in 2022, the Biden administration canceled proposed copper and nickel mine in northern Minnesota. This was after years of delays navigating a maze of environmental regulations. And yes, the same environmentalists and green leaning politicians who tout all the benefits of electric cars are the same people who make mining the materials essential to build those cars, like copper and nickel, all but impossible. Try to square that circle. And people don't realize how dirty
6: green energy is. It's actually worse than fossil fuels which is an article I'm working on right now. But here's the issue, Chris. A lot of people in the media are saying, well, Powell is going to be the next Volcker. There's one major difference between Volcker and Powell. When Volcker started raising interest rates, remember, you took them all the way up to 21%, GDP, the debt-to-GDP ratio in 1980 was 30%. Fast forward to today, It's 130%. So, I mean, if if he was to continue doing what Volcker did, he would literally put the economy in a Great Depression. The other issue he's going to be facing, and the U.S. government's going to be facing, there's two issues. I discussed this with Jim Bianco earlier in the program, is the overall interest rate on debt right now is about 1.5%. Most of that debt, almost a third of it, is short-term. So, you know, the government was trying to save money. Remember, folks, at the beginning of the year, the Fed funds rate was at zero. Last year, 10-year treasuries were at a half a percent versus almost 4% today. So if you take a look at all this debt that is going to be rolling over, we're going to be going from one-tenth of a percent to 4% on treasuries. So you could very well see if we continue within a year, You could see the government paying out close to a trillion dollars in annual interest versus the half a trillion that they're paying for now. We're just not in the same debt position, and the debt position is actually going to get worse. And uh, we'll get to that in just a second. But, Chris, you know, all the presidents of the 21st century have been running trillion-dollar deficits under George W. Bush. They were half a trillion until the financial crisis in 2008, where the deficits were a trillion. Obama's deficits, his first administration, were over a trillion dollars. It was only towards the latter part of his second uh, administration that we brought him down below a trillion. Trump ran trillion dollar deficits when the economy was growing. In fact, uh, the, the final year of Trump's presidency in 2020, when we were in lockdowns, we actually had a deficit, budget deficit of $4.3 trillion. This year, the deficit will be over a trillion. And the CBO says we're going to be running trillion-dollar deficits well into the latter part of this decade. So right now, when you think about it, we started out the beginning of this century with a national debt of $5 trillion. It is now $31 trillion and could be grown by several trillion dollars a year. So uh, that is gonna be all that extra money that is coming in. And let me tell you another issue that we're gonna run into, 2023 SSI, which is disability insurance, the SSI fund is broke next year. Medicare goes broke in 2026, and Social Security goes broke in 2033. When I say broke, not really. They'll just have to cut benefits by 25%. And Chris, you you just look at these deficits today. I've never seen anything like this. Jim, when you're
7: talking about deficits, can you give an example of what you're talking about here? Because it seems that politicians have a different definition or way of looking at deficits versus you and I and the, the common household.
6: Well, let's take a look at an example. This is from 2020. Tax revenues were four trillion. The budget was six point nine trillion. New debt added two point eight trillion. National debt thirty trillion. So that's at the government level. Now let's bring this down to let's say the consumer and give an example. What if you are a consumer, your annual income is forty thousand six hundred, which would be kind of equivalent to the 4.6 trillion. Annual spend is 69000 Your credit card debt is 28400 Now your total credit card debt is 300000 How long do you think the banks would continue to loan you money on your credit cards? And what do you think that would happen to you at the individual level because of that?
7: Uh, I, I think you're credit rating would fall precipitously and you would have to declare bankruptcy. It wouldn't be good for you. That's for sure.
6: Yeah. Here's the problem. Both parties are hooked on modern monetary theory that says, you know, deficits don't matter. You can spend as much money as you want because we'll just simply print it. And as long as you can print the money in your own currency, well, you don't have to worry about it. Well, try telling that to some of the people right now that live in England They live in Europe. The pound is about ready to go below the dollar. We've seen the euro go below the dollar. In Japan, uh, the yen has fallen to almost 150 yen to the dollar. So as bad as things are going to get here, imagine you're in Europe. You have to buy oil. Oil is denominated in dollars. The dollar is at a record level, which means you are paying more for that oil Uh, than what we are. I mean, energy inflation in England is running about 22%. It's high double digits in Europe, and it's going to get worse. And the reason it's going to get worse is because of policy. So much of what is going on here are policy mistakes. Policy mistakes by the Fed, leaving money and interest rates too low, printing too much money for such a long time. Now they're trying to play catch up. Policy mistakes on energy, shutting down the pipelines, not granting leases, uh, going after companies. As you said, now they don't want the banks to loan. They basically want to shut down oil companies and put them out of business. And so there's a policy mistake. And then these gargantuan size budget deficits were, I remember Bernanke once talked about, he said, well, if things really got bad, we could do helicopter drops. Well, we actually got them for the first time. In 2020 and 2021, the government deposited money into your account. And that's why that year we had a budget deficit of $4.3 trillion. Just to give you a perspective, since COVID started, we have added $25 trillion of additional debt globally. The money supply has grown by 25%. Or almost, I no, that was just one year. That was one year. I think the money supply is almost up by 50%. So you take a look at all these things, it's policies that are creating it, and we're still stuck on stupid, thinking that, you know, I love the idea that they just passed, what, another 800 billion of new spending, and they called it the anti-inflation bill. It's anything but anti-inflationary. It's highly inflationary. So that's why I think, Chris, uh, once again, we think the Fed's going to lose this battle. There's no way they're going to be able to bring inflation down to 2% when you're going to have triple-digit oil prices, and then you're also going to have massive government deficits to the two and a $1 and $2 trillion with massive new spending. And what do you think is going to happen next year when we go full bore into a recession? You're going to see a recession spending bill. They're going to bring back more spending. And then the Fed is going to be sitting there holding the bag. What do they do? Can, are, are they going to take interest rates to 10%? I mean, you've got mortgage rates now heading to 7%. The real estate market is rolling over, a harbinger of uh, hard landing that's ahead of us next year. So Jim, just to
7: recap, you know, I want to point out again, you know, we started talking about how there was a tidal wave of inflation coming early in 2020. And the reason that you had made that call and wrote about it, warning that this was to come, was really from a one-two punch, where we were stimulating demand with checks in the mail uh, to the tune of, you know, trillions of dollars of money printing, while at the very same time, simultaneously dramatically reducing supply through the lockdowns. So you have massive stimulation of demand and at the same time, a dramatic reduction in supply. Economics 101 tells you prices are going to shoot up. So that was the big call that you made. We've been reiterating on our show ever since the very early part of 2020 after the lockdowns and the stimulus checks were announced. That held true. Now at this point, What you're saying is the Fed is going to lose the inflation battle, not only from the effects that we saw previously, but also carrying through with the aggressive fiscal and regulatory policies that are currently in place under this administration to dramatically reduce the amount of production and investment into the fossil fuel sector. This is one huge part of it, which is pro-inflationary. And you can see this. If any of you want to take a look, go to Trueflation.com. Trueflation.com collects a million different price points around the web. And it shows, if you look at it right now, the number one highest component is utilities. That's the biggest driver of inflation currently right now is utility bills. So that includes natural gas, electricity prices, That is now at 14% year over year. Second to that is food. So again, this is directly tied when we're talking about fertilizer prices spiking up because there's a shortage of natural gas, the trickle-down effects of that from not investing over the last decade to expand production, not to expand a refining capacity, directly into both food and now into utilities, the two components that are dry that are going up the most. So again, this is fiscal and regulatory policies that we're seeing that are now coming home to bite. The Fed does not have control over these parts, and that's why you're arguing they're going to lose this battle.
6: Oh, absolutely. Uh, our own Governor Newsom just signed 40 new climate change bills that are going to force our utilities to shut down their nat gas plants in order to meet their carbon emissions. Then they're going to have to shift over, Chris, to less efficient, more expensive, and dirtier sources of electricity like wind and solar. Now, I'm writing a story on why it's dirtier because 95% of our high-tech digital world in our green world relies on rare earth minerals. Who controls that? China controls 95% of rare earth minerals. They have tens of thousands of people die every year in that city because of the toxic waste that are created by rare earths. And China is stockpiling these. It's not just that they control rare earths in their own country. They're even controlling them in our country. They're controlling them in Africa. They're controlling them now moving into South America. So we're going to be dealing with China, which is becoming the new OPEC on steroids A rare earth minerals. You, you can't have an iPhone. You can't have an iPad. You can't have a windmill. You can't have solar. You can't have EVs without rare earths. And then on top of that, we are blocking and stopping every one of the mines, whether it's a copper mine in Minnesota or Arizona, a cobalt mine in Maine. We are stopping all that. So basically, we can have the solar panels in the wind here, which don't really work, and we can say, well, that's clean and green. It isn't because the dirty part of clean and green is done in China.
7: Yeah, Jim, I have a table here. This was done by Benchmark Mineral Intelligence. We have cited this before, but particularly when it comes to any of the key minerals that are used in electric vehicles. This is also true for renewable energy technology more broadly as well. For nickel, Europe processes and refines about 10% of nickel. The US, 1%. China, 68%. Cobalt, Europe refines and processes 15%. The US, 0%. China, 73%. Graphite, China has 100% control over the processing and refining of graphite. Lithium, China, 60%. The U.S., only 4%. You go down this list, one after another after another of all of these key minerals and critical metals used, like, again, as you said, in electric vehicles or in renewable technology, China has a chokehold on all of these. And you know they would only be more than happy if we decide to put pressure on them as we're aggressively moving into renewable technologies and making ourselves completely dependent upon China. You know they'd be only more than happy to do exactly what Russia is doing to Europe right now by putting pressure on them. They'll just say, oh, hey, we need these key minerals, these strategic minerals for our own consumption. Sorry, U.S. Sorry, Europe. We're not going to export these to you anymore. And what happens? We see exactly what's happening in Europe
6: happen to the U.S. It already happened, Chris. The Chinese did the same thing with rare earth minerals with Japan over uh, the Spratly Islands. And they also kind of gave a clear message to Biden when he was talking about doing something. So they control all the key strategic materials that run our society from copper, cobalt, lithium, nickel, And we can just go on and on and on. And so we no longer have control over this because of our policies of shutting down mining in this country. And now we're trying to shut down the production of fuels. What do you think is going to happen? A good example, just take a look at Europe because that could be coming here if we don't pivot and change course here shortly. And that means higher inflation. Once again, I do not see the Fed winning on this battle. Because like I said, Volcker had a 30% debt to GDP ratio when he was raising rates. Today, that ratio is 130% and climbing. Well, Jim,
7: we've covered a lot of really interesting information so far. And um, I do want to encourage you to look at some of the links that we're going to have that substantiate a lot of what we said, Uh, if any of this information is new to you, because a lot of what we're saying flies directly in the face of what you may be being told uh, in the media, uh, especially in certain outlets when it comes to whether or not renewable technologies are as clean as they're made out to be, where, of course, they're being sourced from, some of the vulnerabilities that this is setting us up for, and how this relates to the broader macro picture. Uh, These are all subjects that we've been discussing for many years on our program. Uh, But that being said, Jim, break this down for us in terms of Investor expectations, because obviously we have financial sense, wealth management. We don't just focus on the macro, but we try to take the macro landscape, whether or not that is fiscal, regulatory, monetary policy, economic trends, boil this down for us into what should investors expect when we think about the months and years ahead?
6: Well, let's start with the markets. I mean, we got spoiled, Chris, for 10 years coming out of the financial crisis from 2009 all the way up to 2020 investors saw double digit returns in the market. And we had low inflation, even though Obama was running trillion dollar deficits, spending money. Uh, we didn't have the supply issues. Uh, we, we still had oil prices. In fact, what really helped in 2014 was the Saudi oil wars when they started to push trying to drive American shale companies out of business They drove oil into a bear market that lasted almost seven years. And so we had this lower inflation. And I think this is what surprised the Fed, because since 1980, we were in a disinflationary environment. You can see that by looking at a long-term chart of treasury yields. We got down to the lowest levels in 5,000 years of human history. But here's the thing, even when the stock market was going up each year, most investors forget the average drawdown correction was 14% a year. And, you know, we talk about 10% returns in the stock market, Chris, half of that comes from dividends. But, you know, this 10% return is an average with dividends included. So you might get a year where stocks are up, like 15%. And then the following year, they're down 20%. So it's an average. And so investors for use, and so was the Fed and policymakers to low inflation, low energy costs. We haven't seen $150 oil, a triple digit oil. We saw it for part of the, uh, the last decade, but it didn't last because from 2014, the Saudis drove oil down below $100 a barrel, and they stayed down there. And actually, during the uh, lockdowns, we actually got to a month. It was, I think it was the month I wrote my article. I think it was April of 2020 when we got down to a negative
2: $40.
6: Literally, if you had an oil contract, you were paying people to take your oil. So that's what they're not used to. So given that, Jim, what would you be doing as an investor right here? I expect, Chris, we own oil. You know, it's pulling back right now. But remember, Biden's just authorized, I think it was another 10 million or 20 million barrels. They're trying to drive this down before the election. After the election, they stopped drawing SPR. Two other factors. In February, the price caps on Russian oil go into effect. Basically, the G7 are telling the Russians, we're not going to allow you to sell oil above a certain price. What do you think the Russians are going to do? Either one, I hope they don't do this, which is basically just cut back their production. We could lose 2 million barrels a day. OPEC is behind its production targets by 3.6 million barrels. We are going to lose the 1 million of barrels plus in drawdown from the SPR. So I expect oil to go up, which is going to be another problem next year for the Fed. If you look at base metals, the green and ESG mandates and policies are driving demand with some of the lowest inventories that we've seen in copper, nickel, and others. It's like, you know, Elon Musk came out and he, he's gone to mining companies, "Hey, if you produce nickel, I will sign a 10-year contract because I can't build my cars without it." And as you just said, Chris, we only make 0% or 3 or 4% of all these strategic materials, they're either 60, 70, or 100%, or 95% controlled by China. If you want to take a look at food, we're invested in ags because without fertilizer, you take a look at the inputs for a farmer two costs diesel fuel to run their tractors and combines, and fertilizer. What's gone up fourfold? What's gone up more than double diesel fuel? We've got a diesel crunch coming here uh, as we get closer to the end of the year. So food prices are going to be going up. And I know it's not doing real well right now, but gold and silver. I think, and personally, in my opinion, I think silver is the buy of the century. I was looking at a chart of all the key metals, whether you're looking at copper, nickel, zinc, iron, ore, most of these base metals are up two to three hundred percent. Silver is selling at 40% of where it was in 1980, and you cannot have green, you can't have solar, you can't have high-tech digital instruments without silver. And if we look at gold, there are a lot of people a lot smarter than I am that see gold hitting 5,000 to 10,000. And eventually what they're going to have to do, Chris, the only way we're going to get out of our debt issue is we will devalue the dollar. You can't devalue it against the yen. You can't devalue it against the euro or the Chinese yuan because you just get into a currency war. When they do the devaluation, they'll do the same thing that Roosevelt did when he devalued the currency, took gold from $20 to basically $35. And within one month, Roosevelt ended the deflation of the Great Depression. And we had inflation all the way up to... to, uh, 2037, when the Fed made the crucial mistake of going back and starting raising interest rates, putting the economy right back into depression until we hit World War II. So we like gold, we like commodities, and I think you need to stay in commodities. Just, you know, look the other way, folks, because when they take off, it's such a small market. I mean, I was looking at what happened to some of these commodity stocks, whether it's a silver producer, a royalty company, in a short time span of about three years, they were up 1500%. So the biggest move of gold and silver and oil and commodities lies ahead of us. And if you look at uh, some of uh, the things that you own, because, you know, I'm a big proponent of dividend stocks if you own a high quality company I don't care if it's Procter and Gamble it's you know Coca-Cola uh, you own a high quality drug stock those companies are increasing their dividends every single year and one of the biggest mistakes I see investors make and I've, I've you know you're probably sick of me telling me this story but you know what I can think of no other example that best illustrates this and that is had you owned Coca-Cola, At the end of 2007, Coca-Cola was roughly about $30 a share. By the time you got to March of 2009, Coca-Cola had lost a third of its value. But let's say you never looked at your statements during that period of time. In 2007, Coca-Cola raised the dividend 8%. They raised it 8% in 2008. They raised it again in 2009. So had you done nothing during that period of time, your income went up 24%. And when the market came around beginning in March of 2009, by the end of the year, Coca-Cola was at $30. So it was right back where it was at the end of 2007, rising all the way up to $66 this year. So if you own a high-quality dividend stock, How are you going to get increasing income to maintain your standard of living when we're headed for a decade of inflation? If you don't have anything that's going up, this is the decade you want to be in high quality dividend stocks. You want to be in commodities, real estate and hard assets, because we are going to be going through inflation for the balance of this decade because I'm going to write an article on this. I'm going to talk about the seven forces that are driving this. And one of the things that you don't want to do, if you own a high quality stock, you own an Exxon, Johnson & Johnson, Procter & Gamble, uh, Coca-Cola. I could go on and on. If you own those kind of quality companies, yes, they may go down, but you haven't lost any money until you sell them. And if you have capital gains in those kind of stocks, do not panic and get out of it, because if you do, you're going to have a permanent bear market. It's called taxes. You could pay up to 24 percent federal, add state taxes. And if you're over 65 on Medicare, if you have large capital gains, not only will you pay federal capital gains tax, state capital gains tax, but your Medicare premiums could double uh, because there's six brackets for Medicare The higher your income, and that includes capital gains, the higher your Medicare premiums. And they'll be that way for two years. So don't make that mistake. Do not let these idiots in the media scare you. If you own high-quality companies, be like Warren Buffett. As he said, they could close the market. I could care less because the companies I own are profitable. The problem is people spend a lot of time looking at price. They never look at the fundamentals of the company the balance sheet, the financial strength, the profits, what the company does all they look at price. If you look at price, you're going to walk yourself into a corner and make a mistake later on that you'll regret. So Jim, with that said, what would be the best way
7: for our listeners to get in touch with us?
6: Well, there's two ways. You can go to our website and send us an email, or you can call us toll-free, 888-486-3939. In the meantime, that wraps up today's show. We'd like to thank you for listening to the Financial Sense News Hour. Until you and I talk again, well, we hope you have a pleasant weekend